The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. So hello everybody, good morning, good afternoon, good night, good whatever, whatever it is for you, good death. <laughs> I remember when I was a lay person who sometimes watching Dhamma talks uh, very, very early in the morning because I was from the Netherlands and I like to watch the uh, Dhamma talks given in Australia. So the time difference can be uh, up to 10 hours or something. So sometimes very strange times I was still watching Dhamma talks. So some of you may be doing the same. It's quite nice now with the internet. You can watch it, uh, well, you can watch it live or you can even watch it later. I hear that some people sometimes they give compliments to monks like uh, thank you for giving that Dhamma talk, it helped me fall asleep. <laughs> they they listen to a talk to fall asleep. Well, that's not my intention today to make you fall asleep today because today I want to give a talk that inspires you and lifts you up instead of making you fall asleep. Because just before the talk, I asked London, the one who's hosting, I asked him, what shall I talk about? And he said, oh, I'll talk about inspiration. And just uh, because, yeah, last time I spoke at the, at the uh, Buddhist Society of Victoria, I had uh, my talks very well prepared, with us, even with slides and everything, uh, talking about mindfulness. But today I thought I'd do the total opposite come totally unprepared and just see what Dhamma comes out naturally. And uh, so I didn't really have a topic. I asked London, what shall I talk about? Inspiration, he asked. So then I thought, inspiration. That means I should give the best Dhamma talk, the greatest Dhamma talk in the world. <laughs> so that's the title of today's talk is the greatest talk in the world. Tribute. <laughs> I don't know if anybody knows that song by Tenacious D, I think they're called. It used to be such a famous song when I was a young boy. And it was called The Greatest Song in the World. Tribute. <laughs> and it starts like this. This is not the greatest song in the world. This is just a tribute. <laughs> and it's such a funny song because they sing about how they uh, can't give the greatest song in the world, but at least they can give a tribute to the greatest <laughs> song in the world. So similarly, I cannot give the greatest talk in the world, but I can give a tribute to the greatest talk in the world. That was, and what is the greatest talk in the world? Well, to me, the greatest talk in the world, and I think to many Buddhists, the greatest talk in the world ever given was the first talk given by the Buddha. And the technical name of that in the Pali is called the Dhamma Chakra. Vatana Sutta, it means setting in motion the Dhamma wheel, which means starting the teaching and starting 
the dispensation, starting Buddhism in a sense. It all started with the single talk that the Buddha gave in the deer park at Isipatana, it's called. And actually, many Buddhist statues, they uh, have a representation of this talk, like the one behind me here. I don't know if you can see it, but maybe it's behind the flower, actually. But you see, on below the Buddha, on the pedestal, there is a depicted five monks. And they were the first five people to hear the Buddha's uh, teachings. It was the Dhamma talk at the Dhamma at Isipatana. And there were, only, there were only five people listening there. So a very small audience. Yeah, the Buddhism would grow very to be very big. And uh, yeah, the greatest talk in the world. There were only five people listening. <laughs> this is quite, uh, quite amazing, actually. But I, I suppose the talk was repeated many times. But there were five monks listening. You see in the Buddha statue, the wheel in the middle that represents the uh, Dhamma uh, wheel was set in motion by the Buddha. So this must have been a very important talk. And what was it about? Maybe it was the greatest talk in the world, but according to me, it was about the Four Noble Truths, many of you will know. And you might think, oh, here we go again, the Four Noble Truths again. We know that already, Sunyo. But I think this is such an important teaching, and I keep coming back to it, and it keeps inspiring me so much, these Four Noble Truths. So, yeah, today's talk won't be very original, because I'll just talk about Four Noble Truths, and maybe I'll mix in some other things as well. So... When the Buddha was, uh, decided to teach these Four Noble Truths, before that, he actually thought, ah, shall I really teach this? Maybe nobody will understand <laughs> what I'm saying. And he almost didn't, didn't start teaching. He almost just got enlightened and then was like, ah, people won't get this. It's too, too, uh, counterintuitive, you could maybe say, or counter-desire. <laughs> and uh, it's very deep, these teachings. And it takes a lot to, uh, to embrace it and see them as they are. So the Four Noble Truths, I uh, will summarize. In the first Noble Truth the Buddha started teaching, he said, the first Noble Truth is that life is unpleasant, is suffering, dukkha, he called it. Dukkha, he said, sickness you get in life, you get death in life, you don't always get what you want, and especially your body, yeah, you know, it's always tired and pain, and it's just uh, a lot of problems in life. So, Life, the Buddha said, is problematic, is suffering. And you might think, well, we have a lot of problems now with COVID. That's, you might say, uh, COVID, ah, that's, we should get rid of that. It's not natural. It's not the way life is supposed to be with this uh, virus going on. But 
2,500 years ago, the Buddha already warned us, saying, yeah, this is just the way life is, you know, sickness is part of life. Viruses, uh, storms, and whatever have you, wildfires and everything, your loved ones pa passing away. Uh, it's all life. And uh, it's problematic. That's basically the first thing that the Buddha says. And so far, maybe not too unique of a teaching, actually, because uh, there's other religions who would maybe say the same thing. Like, yeah, life is not uh, not uh, not so good. Yeah, it's actually uh, a central tenet of other religions as well. So, but still, many people would not agree with that. Yeah, they would say, "Our oh, life is beautiful. Life is." Uh, amazing and well at some point you can look at life and you say yeah life is beautiful it's amazing but the buddha was saying there's always underneath everything it's actually uh, is not all that amazing it's actually uh not the greatest the greatest peace the greatest happiness that there can be In one of the Dhamma Pada's verses, it says, Nati Kanda Samo Dukkha. And it basically, the Kanda is basically what makes up life. So you could say, There's no suffering like life. Not, and then the next sentence is, Nati Santi Paramang Sukang. And that means there is no happiness. Or there's no ease, just the same as peace. And actually, was reminded of that because I just saw this uh, picture of Ajahn Chah, and it has this phrase on there: "Nati Santi Paramang Sukang." And the translation is actually pretty bad, actually, because it says there is no happiness greater than a peaceful mind. But the word "mind" it, for those who know Pali. Uh, is actually uh, not in there, in, you see? So actually, Napi Santi Paramang Sukhang from Dhammapada actually means uh, there's no happiness greater than peace. Santi is peace, and doesn't mean peaceful mind, because the Buddha said, not in the Dhammachakpavatana Sutta per se, but in other suttas, that the mind is also suffering. Yeah, this is quite amazing. That even just to to uh, be aware, to uh, know things is also suffering. Wow, that's very deep teaching. No wonder the Buddha was a bit hesitant to share it with us. That even that even a peaceful mind is still suffering actually, because it's still things going on. There's still things going on. That is so difficult to see and so difficult to embrace that that even just awareness is still the suffering according to the buddha so i'll talk a bit about how you get to see that later but first you have to uh i'm i'm i'm, I'm remember this this little little uh, story in the uh in the jataka tales jataka tales are 
probably not original tales from the Buddha, but they are very inspi inspirational anyway. And so uh, there is this Jataka tale. There is a monk who well, ordains, but then he disrobes again, goes back to uh, his family life or lay life or whatever. Then he uh, decides, I'll become a monk again. And then he disrobes again. And then because he is tempted again back to uh, the pleasures of the lay life, then he decides, oh, I'll, I'll become a monk again. And then he is tempted by the pleasures again. And he, become, he, he becomes a lay person again. He disrobes again. Then he becomes a monk again. <laughs> and it was like seven, or seven times he disrobes and gets drawn back to uh this to this to the sensual desires and back to the world then the buddha says oh uh, i remember something similar happening uh in a past life i don't know if it was the buddha's past life or past life of that monk but these jataka tales are not 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 real events anyway so it doesn't really matter but then the buddha tells this story about a gardener who has only one thing that keeps him alive, this, this farmer actually, one thing that keeps him going is his very old and blunt shovel that he has. Because a farmer, yeah, you need a shovel at least at the very least. But that's, that's all this farmer had, had the one shovel. With the shovel, he would of course toil the earth, then he could plant the seeds and wait for it to grow. And then he could take them out with the shovel and digging. And so he was very attached to this shovel because this shovel was the farmer's livelihood. With this shovel, he was able to provide food for himself, maybe sell some of the food, make some money. Yeah. So he was very attached to this one single thing, this one single shovel. And then, But then that farmer decided to become a nun. Let's say it was a nun this time. In the story, it's always the monks just get a bit boring. So let's say the farmer was actually a, a lady and she decided to become a monk, become a nun. So she put the shovel away somewhere safe, somewhere in a, in a shed or something, and then went forth, put on the robes, ordained under the Buddha, or no, not under the Buddha, ordained in a, in a past life, under a previous Buddha, maybe. And then, while she was a nun, she started thinking about the shovel again. <laughs> and, of course, you know where the story is probably, where it's going. She did row and went back because she kept thinking of the shovel and how the shovel made her life, yeah, made her life work. And so she went back to the shovel, did a bit of farming again, then decided to become a nun again. And when she was a nun, she disrobed again because she kept thinking of the shovel that she said, put somewhere safe. And then she became a nun again, disrobed again, and nun again, disrobed again, and nun again, disrobed again, and nun again, and again, seven times she uh, disrobed or she became a nun. But the seventh time she was actually a bit more clever because she decided, okay, seven, six, six times I've been drawn back to the ley light because of this shovel. I should actually not keep that shovel safe. I should hide the shovel somewhere. I should 
bury the shovel, I think is what happened in the story. I bury the shovel somewhere where I forget about it and then I won't be tempted to go back to the lay life. And so she gave up everything that she had and went then became a nun and became enlightened. And the story sounds a bit silly. And of course, that's the point of the story. Who is attached to a shovel? Nobody's attached to a shovel. But the point of the story is that we get attached to things that are not worthy of attaching to. And we should actually let go of everything. Uh, not only shovels, but also much more subtle things that we are attached to. So we should let go of everything that there possibly is. We should let go of the idea of enlightenment even. Yeah. Let go of the idea of stream winning or whatever you, you hear about in Dhamma talks. And let go of the idea that you are going to be the one <laughs> who realizes things because that's just not the way things work. And we should also let go of the mind to come back to that. Some point in your meditation, you will reach this point, hopefully, that just momentarily you realize that, yeah, that Buddha was right with the first noble truth. It's all, all suffering, all the, all the khandhas, including the consciousness is all problematic compared to the absence of those things, compared to santi, compared to peace. Peace is the greatest happiness. Santi paramansukam. If you realize that and you let go of it all, you let go of all your old dirty shovels that you don't really need, then is the moment that you will realize the truth of these teachings. And these teachings are so, so weird, isn't it? And when the Buddha is talking about life being suffering, it might sound very depressing, doesn't it? Because we want the life to be pleasant, and then the Buddha comes talks about suffering all the time, and it sounds very depressing. But you might notice that when I'm talking about suffering, I'm uh, not depressed. <laughs> Actually, I uh, like talking about it. So how do we go about uh, keeping uh, a cheerful attitude in the light of this knowledge that it's all actually problematic? How do you do that? Hmm? How do you keep inspired? How do you keep, uh, keep going? Well, one thing definitely very helpful is to actually also realize that it's not just all about suffering because of course there's not just one noble truth that life is suffering there's multiple noble truths and there's also the noble truth that there is an end possible to suffering and this is the third noble truth i'm skipping the second one for now the third noble truth is that there is a possible an end to suffering and the fourth noble truth is actually saying uh, well this end of suffering you can practice towards there is the noble eightfold path to practice that 
towards the end of suffering. And the Noble Eightfold Path includes this very important factor, factors of virtue and also of meditation. So if you maybe feel a bit depressed about the Noble Truths or just depressed about other things actually, then practice the virtue, practice being a good person, practice the generosity, and you'll actually get a lot of happiness out of that. Because it uplifts the mind. And happiness and depression, those two opposites, they are not, in my experience, dependent upon the situation or that you're in, but dependent on the way you react to that situation. You might sometimes see people uh, who are very sick, but still very happy. While, uh, whereas other people who are very sick get uh, very depressed about it. What's the difference? Well, the difference is not in the sickness, the difference is in the attitude, the attitude towards, towards it, towards the sickness. The situation, the external situation is exactly the same, but internal situation is different. So it's the same with the sickness of life in a way, yeah? the problem of uh, suffering of, of life compared to the peace of Nibbana is you can be uh, depressed about it or you approach it with a happy and energetic attitude and the difference is just the way you look at it. Yeah, and what, but sometimes you cannot really change the way you look at things because you just stood too much a bit uh, down. And as I said before, yeah, practice the generosity, practice the, the virtuous aspects of the path, but also do not forget about meditation. Because sometimes when you're not so inspired, maybe not so, uh, uh, not so energetic, you don't really feel like meditating so much because you think, ah, I'm already not so uplifted. What good will the meditation do? I've been there even as monks, so then it's very easy to think, yeah, why meditate now? I mean, it's, uh, I don't feel on top of the world anyway, so it's probably, uh, I should do something else to distract me or whatever. I find actually, if you meditate regardless, then that is actually where you can get energy from, from the, from the meditation. And when you get energy, you get joy. The two always go together. It's talked about in the suttas as well. So when you really meditate, even when you don't feel so well, you get uplifted. That's there where you get energy. Then you can look at the noble truth as they are. Because when you are depressed and you don't feel so well, then it's very hard to talk about or to look at the noble truths. But when you're uplifted and happy, 
this is the goal of meditation and your mind is strong then you can really look at these uh, noble truths which are very challenging yeah? but you can't do that unless you have a very very strong mind and i would even say you would have to to really understand them you would have to uh, go into the really deep meditations of the jhanas but that is a whole different subject i won't talk about too much today because still have the other noble truths to go <laughs> I, I talked about the first noble truth i talked about the third well you already see how uh, i was right at the beginning of this talk that i cannot give the greatest talk in the world because i'm already uh, mixing things up and losing the thread all the time <laughs> so again this is just a tribute to the greatest talk in the world uh, so yeah, the second <laughs> noble truth I forgot uh, totally about. So let's also talk about that one. And uh, to talk properly about the second noble truth, we actually uh, have to think about life in a broader perspective than just the one single life. It's a very important aspect in Buddhism that uh, there is not just the one single life that we have. We are born before in other lives. We've had lives before as humans, maybe as also as other kind of beings, maybe as animals as well. And uh, you have to keep this uh, you know, perspective in mind when you look at the Four Noble Truths. Because of course, when you just look at one single life, it, the amount of suffering is very limited. But if you look at it in a bigger perspective, of having a whole cycle of lives then things suddenly look a bit different because we get born again and again and this is the problem if we were just born once and that was uh, we had a nice life and that was the end of it then what would we be the point really of uh, <laughs> Of the buddha teaching us because in the end uh, the end result will be the same for everybody so the real uh, point of the teaching but that's not the way that's not the way it is actually and you can realize also that through meditation that you no know, you've lived before and you will live again if you don't solve the causes of the rebirth and this is what the second noble truth is about the causes of a rebirth and it says in a second noble truth it's a craving that leads to rebirth that is the cause of the suffering it specifically says craving that leads to rebirth is the cause of suffering not just any craving but craving that leads to rebirth it's quite interesting actually so if i if i crave for lunch <laughs> which will be an hour from now <laughs> i don't really crave for lunch but if i would then well that's not really what is part of the uh, second noble truth per se because it doesn't necessarily lead to rebirth unless i will die before lunch <laughs> and i'm still craving for lunch then i might be reborn uh, <laughs> maybe as a kitchen deva or something <laughs> i don't know what i'm saying but you know, not all craving is per se a part of the second noble truth because not all craving leads to the rebirth. Not all craving leads to the uh, next life. 
And specifically describing that leads to the next life that is, according to the Buddha, is the cause of suffering. Because once you are born, that's when you're, uh, yeah, that's when you're bound to suffer, basically. That's when the problem starts. However, of course, as I said before, there's also a flip side of the coin. There's a solution to the problem, which is to end the craving. Yeah, and then when you end the craving, and then you will end all craving, also craving for lunch. <laughs> that is when there's no more force that leads you on after that to, to next rebirth. That is the point of the third noble truth. The end of suffering is set about when we end the craving. And it's not just that. No, it doesn't say in the noble truth that craving is suffering. Many people understand Buddhism in that way, that craving is suffering. But that's, if you read it properly, that's not what it says. It's not that it isn't true. Craving is also part of the suffering, but is much broader than that. Yeah. And in the noble truth, you will see that craving, especially craving for rebirth, is the cause of suffering. It's not called suffering itself, although it's part of suffering. Yeah. So we have to uh, eliminate the craving and we have to uh, let go of all desires. As I said before, this includes the desire to be enlightened. <laughs> this includes the desire to uh, actually, the funny thing is, it, it, this includes also the desire to be free from suffering because that's still a kind of a craving. So, even the craving to be free of suffering, you have to also let go of to uh, be able to, uh, yeah, to end suffering. So those are the four noble truths. First noble truth that life is problematic, is suffering. The second noble truth is that the cause of this suffering, the cause of being alive is that we get reborn because we crave it to be reborn. And craving sort of propels us onwards into next life. The third noble truth is that if we end this craving, then we can uh, stop the suffering. Yeah. And the fourth noble truth is about the path that we can practice to uh, remove all this uh, craving and to then end the suffering. So that's the eightfold path. A very short version of Dhammachak Pavatana Sutta and a very uh, not as nice version as the Buddha's, so I recommend everybody read the Sutta, the Amachakpavatana Sutta, the one that I just gave a tribute to. So these these teachings, they are you might read them. Some people get really inspired by it, and other people maybe not. And some people might read them and immediately get some faith that this is true that the re that there is such a thing as rebirth and that that is suffering whereas other people they might read them and think this is also silly i don't have faith in this at all yeah? 
because I was actually also uh, asked somebody else what shall I talk about, not just Longdon. And uh, the other person, uh, Richard, who lives here, and he said, maybe you could talk a bit about faith. So I'm trying to uh, intertwine the two now into the talk, in inspiration of faith, very much connected, of course. But uh, some people, they might read this teaching and not really have the faith in them. Uh, in, I know for myself, uh, I uh, did not believe in rebirth for a long time. Uh, because it just uh, to me it just it was a silly idea to be honest a, a, long, uh, a long time ago when I was a lay person well, a long time relatively uh, 10 years ago or something maybe a bit more I thought it was uh, yeah, a silly idea rebirth so I didn't have really faith in the Buddhist teachings at all in these kind of things anyway so how do you create that faith then how do you rouse your faith? And there, there's various ways to do it. You could also decide to focus on other aspects of the Buddha's teaching that do inspire you more, that you have more faith. Maybe you might not have so much faith in these four noble truths, but you have faith in the power of meditation. You have faith in the... Uh, power of being a good person or following the precepts of uh, yeah, being kind and generous these kind of things and then it's very worthwhile to actually realize that the buddha talked about these things also a lot and uh, basically if what i'm saying is if you have faith in a specific parts of Buddhism and maybe not so much faith in others then just focus on those things that do give you the faith and that do give you the inspiration and because it's not always that all parts of the Buddha's teachings are as inspiring or as faith inducing as all others this is one of the reasons why the Buddha spoke so much uh, suttas is different things for different folks basically how does the saying go again different strokes for different folks or something like that uh, yeah different aspects of the teachings will be inspiring faith for different people and you have to find your own uh, things that inspire you and there's also another way to increase faith and then i would actually not use the word faith so much faith is a translation of the word sada also can be translated as trust but there is a another another term used in the in the suttas which is uh, i can't recall now the exact pali but translation is usually something like confirmed confidence and this is confirmed uh, confidence means that actually you realize by direct experience the same kind of things the buddha was teaching about or that his disciples were, were teaching about or that uh, monks and nuns and like me are talking about 
you realize these things for yourself. And that is another way to increase your faith or also that it's called confirmed confidence because you confirm these different aspects of the Buddhist teaching. And that really, to me anyway, brings us back to the meditation and the insights you can get from meditation. The insights into the noble truth that it is, that life is problematic. <laughs> How do you actually get to see that? You mean just hearing somebody talk about it may be uh, nice to hear, <laughs> but uh, you don't really embracing it so much especially when i said that the mind is also part of suffering how do you how do you see that how do you see that life is suffering it's by letting go of parts of the suffering by letting go of the parts of the suffering only then you can understand what the suffering is when you're immersed in the suffering you cannot understand what the suffering is because it's just too close to you you're just too normalized to it and this uh, it's like the simile of the tadpole that grows into a frog the tadpole is tadpole by the way for people who may not be uh, native english like me is like this uh, fish-like creature that lives in the water and grows later to be a frog when you were a little boy, maybe you uh, sometimes used to go fishing for them. I know many of my friends did, and they would keep them in uh, in a jar or something. But anyway, the simile of the tadpole is that the tadpole lives a whole life in the water, surrounded by water, and they live inside of the water, and they know they think they know about water, but it's only when they grow up to be a frog and they go out of the water, that they suddenly realize what they have been in all the time because they can go out and look down upon the water. Then they can see what water really is, what they really have been living in all this time. And it's the same with the suffering. You have to move away for, from it for a little bit you have to grow up <laughs> to be a <laughs> to be a frog basically the, the the frog that climbs outside of suffering that's what you have to be and this is what you do in meditation you slowly move away from suffering or it may actually go very rapidly for some uh, uh, talented uh, or dare i say lucky people which is somehow fluke it let it go and uh, yeah you move away from suffering first of all the mind moves away from all the thinking that's going on inside our mind all the time and when we usually live our life we think a lot and we think this is actually uh, sometimes we think it's a pleasant thing to do all this thinking and it helps us out but when you actually move away from the thinking and you find the silence inside of the mind that's when you can realize how oh, this thinking is actually problematic. It was all this burden all the time. And now, well, you don't, <laughs> if you think that, then you're suffering again. <laughs> I think you get the point that when you are really peaceful inside, you're not thinking, 
and you actually can feel experience how the thinking was suffering before whereas if you are still thinking about thinking being suffering then you're still inside of the thinking still inside of the suffering and you don't really realize the problem to its full extent you move away from the thinking become quiet and peaceful inside and then it doesn't stop there of course it goes much deeper than that the mind eventually moves away from awareness of the body altogether and goes inside this is what they call the jhanas i don't want to talk about that today too much but you let go of all the awareness having to do with the body then you get to see ah this body was actually problematic this body that i have been treasuring all this time it's actually uh yeah it's actually dukkha it's it's not sukha <laughs> it's dukkha it's, it's suffering not happiness and and the, yeah the suttas talk about this uh, as well that you can only realize the the suffering of the body by moving away from it and this is like you are the frog that climbs outside of the water you when you move away from your body and you just with the mind alone that is when afterwards actually you can realize the body was suffering now how would you know that even the mind is suffering then uh, yeah or you get the thread of this of of this uh of this teaching by now then you should know you should also move away from the mind and this is when you let go of everything and when you let go of it all then the mind moves away from the mind in the sense that uh, it just stops for a while and you realize later oh it was actually very 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 peaceful actually uh the mind is also suffering and then you can move away from suffering and that is one way to create a lot of faith and inspiration in the teaching by actually doing these steps of moving away from suffering and actually realizing that this was what the Buddha was talking about and you're slowly getting out of the water you're getting out of suffering you're seeing actually these things happening when you actually see you're realizing these teachings bit by bit that is when you can really uh, get a lot of confidence that what the Buddha was saying makes a lot of sense it's very pragmatic also the buddha's teachings compared to uh, many other teachings that you might find which just uh, are based on belief it's almost the word religion and belief are almost uh, synonymous in a way for many religions but for buddhism belief is not something uh, can be useful but it's not the end goal yeah that therefore faith is useful but confirmed confidence is better <laughs> and that is the end that is the end goal to actually realize teachings of the buddha and these things are possible actually 
Yeah, the Buddha was actually when he thought before teaching the greatest talk in the world. When he thought, "Oh, nobody's going to understand this," he was actually very wrong. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, the Buddha wasn't omniscient apparently, because he thought nobody's going to understand this, but people did understand. It. And actually, at the very first talk, people, this is the Venerable Kondanya already understood what the Buddha was talking about. And it seemed to even have surprised the Buddha. If you read the Dhammachakpavatana Sutta, the Buddha is like, wow, he understood. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And uh, it's still possible today. Some, pe some people are very, uh, I would say, uh, negative attitude, they might say, oh, it's no longer possible these days to realize the Buddha's teachings too long ago the Buddha lived. But I say, no, this is all possible. And for those of you listening to talks like these, you have a very good spiritual qualities. Especially if you made it this far into the talk and you're still listening. <laughs> Those few people out there who may still be listening, you, I have lots of faith in you, that you can be the frog who gets out of the water. You can be the person who climbs out of the suffering. And you can realize and understand these four noble truths and you will be able to realize what the greatest talk in the world was all about. And that would be a true tribute to the greatest talk in the world. The true tribute would be not talking about it like I'm doing now. It's in a bit of a silly way. <laughs> My apologies for that. But the true tribute would be to realize these four noble truths and when you realize them then the end result is inevitable you will actually get out of suffering you will realize the santi paramang sukang you will realize peace is the greatest happiness and then you might be like this wonderful person here Ajahn Chavu many believe to have reached the end suffering and i think you can all do the same so i want to uh, yeah end my tribute there and may you all thrive in the buddha's teaching So, I don't know if there is any questions, then uh, I'm happy to answer them. I don't have too much time before I have to go, but we'll see. Thank you very much, Bhante, for your uh, inspired and inspiring talk, <laughs> the tribute to the greatest talk in the world. Yes. Uh, I didn't mention at the start that people can type their questions into the live chat here on YouTube. So if you do have a question 
for Bhante, please uh, feel free to type that into the chat. Oh, someone's just posted one. Um, and as uh, Bhante said, he has a short time available. So we'll get through oh. as many questions as we can. Would you like me to read the question out, Bhante? Uh, I can read them myself, I think. I see him. All right. It, it's from Banana Eddie, <laughs> isn't it? Bananacom. Bananacom Eddie. Oh, yes. The question is, how important is physical self-care, such as good hygiene and the appearance of nice, clean clothes? Is it just as important as meditation? And without it, can it affect the practice, oh, the, the, the name is actually Ariel. Sorry for calling you banana before Ariel. <laughs> no offense. So how important is physical self-care, appearance of nice clean clothes? Well, my clothes are actually not so, uh, they're falling apart, my row is actually. It's been tearing a lot, but I'm still wearing it because, uh, you know, clothes is just the external uh, part and Eventually, your external, your body, and your clothes will fall to bits anyway. Yeah? Even the Buddha, he was very wise and compassionate, but also his physical body at some point gave in. He got very sick at the end and also passed away. So, this is one thing first to realize that yeah, we can only do so much about the physical side of things. We can only uh, yeah, sort of keep it up, do sort of uh, the yearly maintenance, like on a car, you know. <laughs> uh, you, you go to the maintenance with the car, but you know that eventually the car you will have to go to the scrapyard. Man, I, I wouldn't recommend just yearly maintenance on the body. <laughs> Do a bit more maintenance, yeah. Of course, it's important to care, take care of yourself. This is actually, uh, it's important. So put it into the right perspective by realizing that eventually there's only so much you can do about the body. But yeah, it's also important care. This, uh, this is actually part of the Dhammachakpavatna Sutta. Before the Buddha teaches the Four Noble Truths, he said, don't go into two extremes or two ends of the spectrum. Don't go into too much sensual, uh, pursuing the sensual side of life only. Yeah, If you're only uh, about listening music, watching the soccer, and you don't care about the uh, the spiritual side of things, then the Buddha said, no, don't do that. Don't go into the sensual side of things. But also, don't neglect the uh, uh, physical side of things, or how the Buddha uh, worded it is, um, no, don't go into the, the, the self-harm in a sense, not, not the way we use self-harm nowadays, but uh, don't uh, uh, think that by uh, mortification or by just abstinence, not caring about the physical, that that, that is somehow a good thing. No, no, the Buddha actually 
made it quite clear you have to also care of yourself. Uh, for example, the Buddha, before he got enlightened, he practiced the wrong path and he tried to, to just eat as little as possible. He thought that would be a good thing at some point. But then he realized, just before he became enlightened, he realized, oh, that's actually not the right thing to do. I have to actually take care of myself. I have to actually eat properly. Otherwise, it is very hard to do the meditation. Yeah. So if you don't take care of your body, you, if you don't eat enough, if you don't take care of your physical health, don't take care of these kind of things, then your body will be affected and you cannot do the meditation properly because you're sick and starving and these kind of things. So Ariel, yeah, it's important to take care of your body. Please take care of your body. And, uh, can affect the practice in a good way. If you take good care of your body, then you uh, will be easier to meditate. So thanks for that question. Yeah. I see there's another comment which I will treat as a question, which is by Desar uh, uh, Till or something. Sorry. But did this uh, person says, at the time of the Buddha, some people got enlightened just by listening to the Dhamma. Well, I want to comment on that because that is actually uh, not what I think happened. Because when you read the suttas, then the re then the Buddha always says, "How do you get enlightened?" Is by practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. And also, how do you even get to this thing called stream entry when you understand the Four Noble Truths? It's also by doing practice in accordance with the Dhamma. And also, uh, yeah, practicing a spiritual path, including meditation. So it, it's not just that you listen to a talk and you get enlightened. It doesn't work like that because you might be a tadpole underwater listening to the best Dhamma talk ever, but you still won't understand because you actually have to climb out of the water, as I talked about before, to uh, realize what water is. So you have to actually get out of the suffering to understand what suffering is. So when the Venerable Kondanya at the first Dhamma talk of the Buddha understood what the Buddha was talking about, it means that he actually let go of all the suffering. And he actually, uh, the, the Buddha's talk triggered his letting go. It triggered him getting out of the suffering for a little bit. And he, he must have practiced meditation before because he was already, uh, a renunciant, yeah, just like the other four bhikkhus at the time. They were already practicing various kind of meditations and stuff. So he wasn't unprepared. And it's the same in all many other suttas. It's actually, uh, uh, yeah, I would say you always have to practice bef before. It's not just happens out of nowhere. 
So thanks for that question. I hope I, I answered it uh, yeah, appropriately. I could go into many more suttas. I could give a whole talk about it, but I just want to keep it a little bit brief because I see there's actually some other questions are coming up here as well. One is by Brad. Oh, oh, computer issues. What am I doing? Here we go. By Brad. First, he said, thanks, Bante. Well, thank you, Brad, for thanking. And thanks for listening as well. As a beginner, there seems to be an overwhelming number of suttas. Is there a map of where to start? How to go through them? Yeah. <laughs> There is a lot of suttas. Yes, I know that. I know. Yep, yep, yep. When I was a layperson and I first was interested also to just read a few suttas, I looked up online and I hadn't got a clue about all these texts. And as, exactly, there seemed to be so many. So I wanted to read them in Dutch. So I went on the Dutch website where you can buy books and I typed in uh, suttas Buddha and then all these books showed up. And there were different titles. And one was The Long Discourses by the Buddha in Dutch, of course. Yeah, I don't, can't remember what the exact Dutch was. But, and The Middle Length Discourses of the Buddha, The Number Discourse. And then there was also a book called The Short Discourses of the Buddha. And of course, I thought, ah, that's the one I need to get. The short, short one is good. <laughs> because just keep it short and simple, I thought. So I, that's the one I bought, and I'm still in the Netherlands, actually, with my brother. I don't know. Maybe he'll read it one day. But that wasn't actually was not the best place to start because the short discourses are actually uh, mostly some verses and stuff, and they're not not the not the best place to start. Uh, yeah, there is some anthologies of the suttas. Anthologies means like they collected different texts together. Uh, and that's probably the best place to start because you get a kind of an idea of what these uh, suttas are all about. Um, there is, for example, the Word of the Buddha is an anthology by Yanatiloko uh, was his name, I think. Bhikkhu Bodhi also had a, an, an, has an anthology of the sutta, I think, maybe called In the Buddha's Words or something like that. Yeah. Um, so look up look up things like that instead of just plunging into the suttas. See if you can find some sort of guide or anthology to the suttas, and uh, that will be will be helpful to uh, get you started. But you can also start, of course, jump straight into the suttas. And which sutta is the is the best one to start with, according to me? Of course, you listen to the talk, you'll know it's the Dhamma Chakpavatana Sutta, the setting in motion the Dhamma view or the view of Dhamma. And that is from uh, Sanyutta Nikaya 56.11, I think. And, but if you just Google setting in motion view of Dhamma, then you'll probably find that Sutta very easy and that's a nice place to start. SuttaCentral.net is a good website with decent translation by Venerable Sujato that you can read. I recommend that website. So, Brad, uh, I hope that helps.
And here we go, another question by Christy. Would the merits of reaching Nirvana also help my family and maybe the members of my family that passed on? I would definitely say yes to that. Yes. The best way to repay our parents or our family, according to the Buddha, is to inspire them and uh, induce faith in them. Get confidence in the Buddha's teaching. Because these Buddha's teaching, they are what lead away from suffering. And isn't that what we all want in the end? We want to move away from suffering. Yeah. We want to be happy. Why? Because we want to move away from suffering. That's actually what we want. So that's what all your family actually wants. They want to move away from suffering. And if you yourself are able to do that, then that's the best way to inspire your family to do the same, to also look into these teachings, to be a good person, to meditate, to practice generosity and all these things. So, and also family members that passed on. Well, they have, may have passed on, but as in Buddhist, we believe in rebirth, so they're not gone forever. Yeah, they're still about somewhere. And they may actually be uh, paying attention to what you're doing. Might very well be the case. So if you reach, maybe not nirvana per se, but just uh, be a good person, etc., then they will notice and they'll be inspired and uplifted. So that's a great thing to do, definitely. So I see there's more questions coming up. I've got time for one more because I can notice through the windows the monks are already putting their robes on to uh, go to lunch in a moment. So I will have to join them, but I want to not disappoint Isaiah and also answer his question. Bante, what was your experience training as an Anagarika? Uh, Anagarika is a tradition we have in the monasteries here in Australia and also in many other places is that you don't immediately become a monk when you join the monastery, but you stay a lay person for a while who lives in the monastery. That's what we call anagarika. Anagarika literally means uh, somebody who doesn't have a house, yeah, who doesn't live in their own home anymore, but they live in the monastery. And what was my experience? Oh, I could talk about I could, That's a good subject for a talk, maybe. <laughs> but overall, my experience was very, very happy. And actually, to be honest, there has been times as a monk that I thought, oh, I wish I was still an Angerica. That may be surprising, but as an Anagarika, it's so easy to help out the monastery and the monks. And it's uh, such a great gift to be able to, for example, make the lunch for the monks, to cook for them and give them uh, their requisites, do things for them that they uh, can't do 
because of their precepts and that give me so much happiness. And I still remember, for example, giving them the rice and thinking back on that, reflecting back on that still gives me happiness to this day. Remember also with the rope offering ceremony as an anagarika, then uh, we have this big ceremony in Bodhinyana where I usually live. Maybe thousands of people come or more than a thousand people come at the end of the range retreat. And people offer robes to the monks and all the other Ellen characters at the time, they were just, because we had to do a lot of work on that day as well, like guiding the traffic, cleaning up, et cetera, et cetera. Most of the other Ellen during the rope offering, they were just chilling and uh, just keeping away from the crowd basically. But I thought, ah, oh, this is my opportunity to give a rope to the, uh, to the monks. And I remember very well doing that, taking these robes and offering them to the monks, going into the crowd and giving the robes. Actually, well, actually one of the monks who is here with me right now, Venerable Bodhidharma, is uh, one of the monks that I gave a robe to as a Nanagarika. This is, uh, it brings me so much happiness to think about. But yeah, also uh, had a lot of great meditation as well as in uh, Nanagarika and uh, lots of uh, very insightful moments let me put it that way and a lot of interesting interesting uh, experiences that go just beyond the normal uh, offering of robes so because living in a monastery get the opportunity to uh, really go deep inside uh, your mind and really learn about yourself which can be challenging actually. It's also challenging as an Anagarika and as a monk as well. It's uh, definitely not the easiest of lives, but uh, it's very interesting anyway. You, you, uh, you are a tadpole growing its legs, let me put it that way, <laughs> as an Anagarika, which is a weird thing to grow legs if you haven't had legs all your life. So it's a weird thing to, uh, to do. Always very much respect for all the people who are Anagarikas and other lay people living in a monastery. It's a, it's a special way to live your life, not the easiest. And because in a way, the monks and the nuns get all the respect in the monastery, but the Anagarikas do a lot of the, uh, lot of the work, and well, the monks also, but, so, but you don't get as much respect. So it's, 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 uh, I definitely do have a lot of respect for any characters because I've been there. I know what it's like. But it's uh, if you are considering this, Isaiah, to uh, try out the Anagarika life, then I would definitely say give it a go. Don't hold back because you this is your chance to try. And you can always just have a taste of the Anagarika life. And it gives you also a taste of the monk's life. So I will hope that gives you a little bit of an answer of what it was like. Uh, yes, I'll leave it at that. So thank you everybody for listening to this talk. And I will, uh, sorry to say that I, have, I am leaving uh, this monastery very soon because I'm going back to Bodhinyana now the uh, Borders of WA, Western Australia are open again, semi-open. 
Uh, so I'll be going back there. And yeah, it's been a good time here in Newbury. I want to thank everybody of the BSV for supporting me, all the people who have come to give us food, donations, all the people who have made this place a possibility. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, maybe I'll come back.